Hey, this is Mark. And this is Jay. We just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of NerdCage Live. And be sure to tune in to our live show on YouTube every Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Two of my men pulled you out of the lake. We thought you were dead, too. Do you remember very much? The boy. Is he dead, too? Who? The boy, Jason. Jason? In the lake, the, the one who attacked me, the one who pulled me underneath the water. Ma'am, we didn't find any boy. Then he's still there. If what you said is true, Mark Withers and the Nerd Cage could be dangerous. Hello and welcome. That's right, you're trapped in Nerd Cage Live. This ain't just a reaction show, but a debate show and a live discussion on everything that makes people like you and I tick. So thank you for joining us tonight. Please hit that like button and subscribe. I'm your co-host, Jay St. G, coming to you live from Syracuse, New York. And always with me, the warrior from Wakanda, the fiend. From Louisville, my man, Mark Withers, what's shaking, boss? Hey, what's going on, man? Super excited to be here as usual, and yes. Today, we're going to be talking about a mainstay in classic 80s horror, a movie that set the standard and one that gave us one of the most iconic characters in horror cinema. Of course, I'm talking about 1981's Friday the 13th Part 2. Now, Jay, you and I have watched Friday the 13th Part 1 and Part 2 recently. I'm lucky enough to say that I watched them both in the theater when they first came out. Wow. Now, they scared me out of my wits that first <laughs> time because I was a kid, you know? But there's certain things that sort of like, you know, you grow out of. Certain things had the exact same effect that they did back then. So I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, do these films hold up against modern horror cinema? Okay, yes and no. No, because <laughs> it's she's at its finest. I right. mean, it's a bunch of counselors is about to get it. <laughs> it's a trope that's been copied so many times. And I can look back and laugh just a little bit. But yes, because those practical gore effects of all those kills are still impressive. I'm inclined to agree. I mean, you have older movies like Blood Feast and Mario Bava's films from the 70s, but this one really set a standard, particularly with like the jump scare techniques and like the false starts or the false alarm jump starts. It really like set the slasher films of the 80s on a very specific path that they are still on today. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that because Jason is basically like the unstoppable antagonist of horror because at the time horror sequels weren't really coming hand over fist at the time like friday the 13th was halloween just had one movie and yeah, halloween right. 2 didn't come out until after friday the 13th texas chainsaw massacre didn't have as many sequels at the time so jason started the sequel trend hard and fast and again he just kept coming back into every movie moving forward the character evolved into this unstoppable force where in this movie he was just basically just like a, i wouldn't say like a regular guy but he wasn't like the big giant unstoppable zombie creature that he became 
Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because in order to talk about this story arc for Jason Voorhees, we have to take it all the way back to the beginning. So originally the idea for Friday the 13th, it was basically supposed to be an anthology of films that were not connected to each other. So the original uh, had to do with Mrs. Voorhees getting revenge for her son who she thought had died. And then there was going to be the following year, another Friday the 13th film that had a completely different story that had nothing to do with Crystal Lake. But with the success of the first film, people started to sort of clamor for a story that had to do with what happened to the little boy? What happened to Jason Voorhees? Because at the end of the first movie, you see the ripples in the lake and that kind of implies that he's still alive. So one of the producers, Phil Scuderi, insisted that they sort of shift gears and they change the story to talk about the grown up Jason who has witnessed his mother getting killed and now seeks revenge on those same visitors or counselors that come to Crystal Lake. Not to mention the girl that survived the first movie. The second movie picks up right where they left off, how she got rescued by the police and whatnot. And spoiler alert, right at the beginning of the movie, when you're watching the movie, you're thinking, okay, this girl's gonna go through this whole adventure again. No, they totally <laughs> pulled a Terminator dark fate. Killed her right in the beginning of the damn movie. <laughs> right, and there's an interesting story behind that. So the actress that played Alice, the survivor of the first movie, Adrienne King, she acquired a stalker after that movie became a hit. This stalker was so relentless, even with her going out of the country, she had moved to the UK to kind of get away from him and he followed her over there. He was taking pictures of her unaware and then sending them to her, giving her Whoa. death threats. It really traumatized her to the point that she no longer felt comfortable working as an actress. And so even though she was under contract to do the second film, she asked to be involved as little as possible. And so the producers made a decision to sort of just get rid of her early on in the film. So I wanted to get into this. What was your favorite kill? So, <laughs> so, so yeah, so there's a lot of interesting kills. I think the one that kind of struck me the most, like it was the most interesting to me was the guy in the wheelchair. So like, I think his name was Mark also. So he <laughs> takes a machete to the face, he rolls backwards and then you see his wheelchair, like basically go down a set of stairs with the machete in his head. I just like, <laughs> I just found that so, darkly amusing. Just the idea of that kill as opposed to a lot of the other kills where it's basically just like, you know, a slitting of the throat or maybe like a machete to the shoulder or something like that. Yeah. It, it really took a moment to kind of get creative. What was your favorite? You took mine. Honestly, you took <laughs> mine, but I'm gonna give an honorable mention. The one where the cop got killed by the hammer. The buildup to that kill was awesome because he's running through the woods and then he finds Jason's house and then goes inside the house. And I felt like even though it wasn't like the most creative kill, the build up to that one was probably the best in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Now let's talk a little bit about the character Jason himself in this movie. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that it took four different actors to play this role. Now, originally the role went to an actor named Warrington Gillette and he got the part sort of under false pretenses. The casting director was under the impression that he had been to a well-renowned stunt school for stuntmen in Hollywood. 
So he accepted the role and then it became apparent early on in filming that he wasn't able to do a lot of the stunts. And so he was let go. And in the interim, they had the costume designer, Ellen Lutter, play Jason's legs. So any scene that you see where it's just a close-up of Jason's feet and he's walking, that's actually Ellen Lutter's legs. Oh. And then the scene where Alice gets killed, the hand that pushes the ice pick into the side of her head is actually the production assistant. His name is Jerry Wallace. And so they sort of utilized people that they had on set until they could get a proper stuntman. And they wound up hiring a guy named Steve Daskowitz, who at the time was going by the name Steve Dash. And he did all the full body scenes with Jason where he has the sort of burlap sack over his head. Yeah. And then Warrington Gillette came back to play Jason unmasked with sort of the deformed makeup on. That's the first actor. And so, yeah, I think this is probably the only one in the entire series that had that many different actors play Jason. Wow. <laughs> Mark spitting the facts as always. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the rating for this. So one of the things that I found incredibly interesting is that right before this was scheduled to be released, it was submitted to the MPAA and they were adamant on actually giving it an X rating because of its mm -hmm. gratuitous violence. Yes. In order for it to receive an R rating, they had to remove about 48 seconds of gore from the movie. One of the most notable scenes that they excised was the scene where the couple is in bed together and Jason sort of harpoons them both oh. through the bed. That was meant to be a lot more gory. We we're actually meant to see that spear kind of go through them both. If they were to keep that in, they would have received an X rating. There's also a nude scene that involved one of the actresses that they completely took out because I'm not sure if she lied about her age or if there was a misunderstanding, oh. but it turned out that she was underage. You know, they didn't want to get in any hot water, so they completely removed her from Understood. The yeah. <laughs> Probably the best decision. Yes. And it, yeah, and you know what? You talk about the gore and stuff like that. I just want to say, like, these gore effects still hold up. I will say I think the Halloween movies are better per se, but the gore is nowhere near at the level of Friday the 13th. The horror that they put in these movies were at a whole nother level. I agree. I mean, this was sort of an era where they were sort of pushing the envelope. They didn't really have, uh, I don't want to say they didn't have a plan, but they were really in uncharted waters in terms of the type of movie that they were trying to make. So the first Friday the 13th, at least to me, sort of reads more as a whodunit. Right, so you're under the impression that the killer is actually one of the people that has appeared on screen already. And there's not a lot of focus on the kills themselves. It's more about like, well, I bet this guy's the killer. I bet this guy's the killer. Part two, you know, you already know who the killer is. And so they focused on the kills themselves, which wasn't as common. And so they tried to make those kills, I think, as intense as possible and they were also trying to up the ante because they knew that in the first movie, a younger audience responded more to gore and those types of effects. So they leaned heavier into that. We love the gore. We love a lot of stuff about this movie, but let's talk about the score. I just love that eerie 
Yes. <laughs> that iconic One of the most sound. Iconic, yes. <laughs> and another thing too is some of the other parts of the score almost reminds me of Psycho. Yes, I was gonna say that. You could tell that Manfredini took a lot of influence from that original Psycho score. So yep. particularly in the scenes where someone's actually getting killed, you hear that sort of two note ostinato, like that really sharp sounding violin that is prevalent throughout the series. That's a direct rip from the original Psycho. And so I love that in particular. I also love the music in the more tranquil scene, like toward the end, right before that last jump scare, it's this sort of very calm, you know, yeah. almost like easy listening music, but there's an eerie like keyboard that's like sort of phasing in and out. And it kind of gives you this impression that, okay, everything is not like it seems here. And I think that that was a really smart move on the composer's part to kind of give you that extra layer. Absolutely. So I figured might as well let's talk about the sequels. Not all of them per se, but again, how Jason evolved and how they put him in different scenarios. I mean, he went from like Camp Crystal Lake to eventually his two minute appearance in Manhattan to <laughs> outer space and then eventually squaring off with Freddy Krueger. I mean, the character of Jason has been everywhere and talk about a pop culture phenomenon and you go everywhere, you see a hockey mask wherever you go. Speaking of, I love the hockey mask more than I like yeah. the potato sack, but. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. There's a story behind that mask too. So I'll go into that real quick. So for part three, there was not really an intended mask to be used. They were really planning on having Jason sort of be in the shadows and maybe you see the back of his head or maybe you see a silhouette and he's not wearing a mask at all. Well, one day there was a lighting test that needed to be done and the actor at that time, his name was Richard Brooker. They really didn't wanna take the time to put him in makeup just for a lighting test. And so one of the lighting directors was a big hockey fan and he happened to have a goalie mask with him and he said here just put this on for the lighting test so as brooker was putting it on steve minor the director walked by and fell in love with the idea and he had a special effects crew then custom make a mask for richard brooker and nice. then that mask in part three winds up becoming the most recognizable thing in the movie and then that evolved into sort of like a trademark for the character Absolutely. Okay, my favorite Jason, I don't know if I have a favorite movie per se, but I feel like the most rewatchable one to me, I'm going to have to say Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> because I love the fact that even though he's only in Manhattan for like a couple of minutes, but when they filmed it, they just turned on the cameras in New York City and just had Kane Holder just walk through the street. And all those people who are like watching like, like what the hell is this? Those right. are like genuine reactions. They really had Jason to stop through Times Square because they didn't have the budget to properly film in New York City. Right. <laughs> I feel like that was kind of the one that like resonated in my childhood the most because, you know, that came out in the later part of the 80s and I was born in the 80s. I wasn't like around when the early movies came out. I was kind right. of like growing up as the later movies came out because Jason was still a prominent character. What about you? Is there any sequel for you that stands out the most? Well, I kind of stopped at four because I kind of felt like the first two set a very specific mood. Cunningham's original sort of vision for the film 
was the scariest one in my opinion, because we were being introduced to this entire world of Crystal Lake and with uh, yeah. the Voorhees characters. And then part two sort of upped the ante. Part three to me got a little sillier and then part four was just ridiculous. So I just kind of stopped after that. I never watched any of the rest of them, except for Jason X. I watched that one by accident because I was staying with my cousin. She and her husband had rented it and we all sat down and watched it, even though I didn't really want to. I was just like, Jason in space? I mean, come on, for real. <laughs> I just love the whole in space trope. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, I guess we can kind of wrap this up. Bottom line, Friday the 13th Part 2, I felt like was the momentum that horror movies needed. And to follow Jason, even though Mike Myers struck first, Jason struck second and kept the movies going, and then Halloween says, you know what, it's time to bring back Mike Myers. Then Freddy right. Krueger comes along and he gets more movies, and Leatherface comes back. Then we get Pinhead. Like I felt like the horror movie antagonist Kind of started with Friday the 13th Part 2, and the movies just kept on rolling. And eventually, Jason became this huge phenomenon. Jason made cameos in, like, other TV shows. He's been parodied so many times. He eventually just recently got his own video game. And, of course, he was a guest character in Mortal Kombat X. Uh, wow. <laughs> a little bit of a head-scratcher. Right. But for the diehard Jason fans, I guess it pleased a lot of people. So, bottom line is... 80s horror movies have the fan base it does because of Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Slasher movies and gore films existed before this one, but this is the one that really commercialized everything and kind of made studios see the genre as viable and something that they could sort of flesh out. And to this day, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to that film. Before we go, we ask you to pretty please like, comment, subscribe, ring that bell, and spread it like sulfur. So USA from Louisville to Syracuse to all of our friends and fans around the world at Nerd Cage Live, enjoy life, stay safe, and good night. Sayonara. Ooh, trying to get out of the Nerd Cage, are ya? Well, before you go, hit that subscribe button. And if you're really intrigued, ring that bell. Thank you for dropping by. Until next time, tell everyone you know about Nerdcage Live! <laughs>